as is typical in much of the former Soviet Union, there exists a culture of petty bribery. It's kind of left over from Soviet days when many things were very scarce and people would use a little, um, you know, under the table enhancement to get things that they wanted. In fact, even before the uh, Iron Curtain fell and, and things became open, I had a friend who traveled in Russia in the late 1980s with two suitcases. One had his stuff in it, the other was filled with packs of Marlboro Red cigarettes. He traveled all over Russia, handing out cigarettes, getting pretty much into anywhere and everything he wanted. Because in a place where 90% of the people smoke, American cigarettes were apparently a big deal. Now missionaries look at this a variety of ways. Some missionaries refuse any sort of complicity in this as they find it offensive and they don't want to be any part of, of that, that sort of bribery culture. Some missionaries that I talk to look at it as just, it's the cost of doing business in that culture. If you want to get stuff done, sometimes you just got to hand money to the right people and it gets done. Some of the missionaries have kind of a different approach to it. Um, they looked at it as sort of like giving a tip at a restaurant. If you want the best service, you need to be a good tipper. I experienced this firsthand when uh, I'd been in Kiev for a couple days, and we had to take the train to Simferopol, which is an 18-hour train ride on a Soviet-era train. Okay, this isn't like Amtrak, folks. Okay? This isn't the Eurorail. Okay, if you've ever been to Europe and taken the Eurorail, man, see, Europe's really got their public transportation thing. Man, you get on that Eurail, you buy the pass, you can travel all over. It's awesome. You go to Germany, you go to Spain. It's, it's amazing. It's so cool. That is not the kind of train I was on. I was on the kind of train that when you went to the bathroom and you flushed the toilet, a little flap just opened and you saw the tracks going along underneath. That's how it worked. Well, anyway, when you travel 18 hours on the Soviet Union train, sleeper cars. And so you get to your sleeper car, but there's no sheets. Now you got two, two choices. You either brought your sheets with you, which of course I didn't do because I came from or you, you rented sheets from the conductor. At the back of the train was a, a room and the conductor was actually in the back there and he had sheets. And one of the things that I had been told about was that you know the sheet you paid for the sheets and the, the sheets you go it was like it was nothing it was like ten grievna which is like you know like a buck American at the time but the conductor was responsible between train rides for the laundering and folding and such of the sheets so if you wanted the really clean good sheets you needed to slip the conductor a little extra. So when I went back to get the sheets for me and the guy I was traveling with, his name was Paul, um, you know, and you gotta remember I speak enough Russian to, to just get myself in trouble. Um, I went back and I, I asked for the, for the sheets and he was reaching for, for these sheets, right? And I looked at him and I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I reached out and I handed him a 50 degrees of note, which was like five bucks American, right? I mean, it's like, 
uh, particularly artists and students of philosophy and, and tourists who wanted to see you know, the, the great architecture right in, in Athens, the Parthenon, all the temples and that sort of stuff. Um, because of course all those things in Roman times were still standing in perfect condition, unlike now where they're in kind of, a, kind of rough shape. And of course it was known the world over for its architecture and its art. Um, you still can go to art museums all over the world and find Grecian art there that is just amazing. Just beautiful stuff. Statues and vases and all that kind of stuff. And if you notice about most of this art, it characteristically tends to portray various stories of the gods and goddesses of the Greeks. Most of the art, they're, they're statues of the gods, generally in various states of undress, and various scenes on vases and, and that sort of thing. And of course, most of the biggest and most impressive buildings in Athens were the temples to these gods and these goddesses. And so it's this context that Paul finds himself in. I mean, it's you can imagine for Paul, this is, this is a massively different environment than Jerusalem. Jerusalem has one major architectural feature at that time dominating everything in Jerusalem, and that's Herod's temple. The second temple was the one and only dominant feature of Jerusalem in Paul's time. Everything centered around that and the worship of the true God. Not so in Athens. Very different. And so that is where we pick up the story with Paul and the philosophers here in verse 16 of chapter 17 of the book of Acts. It says, Now Paul was waiting for them, the them being Silas and Timothy, that he's asked to come to Athens. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace, or the agora, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now you can imagine, if you've grown up in you know, Israel and, and that area and come and been educated in Jerusalem like Paul was. And now you find yourself in Athens, you know, with a strong distaste for graven images. This is going to be a most unappealing place for you. The text tells us he, he finds the whole place very disturbing. It says he was provoked in his spirit. It's a very strong word. He was like, go in. descriptions of that time testified that the marketplace or the agora was, was virtually lined with idols. Idols all over the place. Idols alongside the street. Idols for sale from various artisans that you could buy your own idol to take home to represent your favorite god or goddess. And did I mention most of them don't have any clothes on them? imagine, this is stressful for Paul. Now, the text tells us Paul stuck to his usual pattern, right? On the Sabbath, he reasons 
with the Jews from the Old Testament. But then during the week, it says that on a daily basis, he was speaking in the Agora, which is the hub of Athenian life, the marketplace. And there, it seems he gets his, his kind of most pronounced response, especially from interacting with some of these philosophers, these Epicurean Stoic philosophers, which were kind of, the, the at that time, the biggest deals in philosophy in Greece at the time. Now, the Epicureans were thoroughgoing materialists. believe there was no life beyond this life. That when you die, food for worms. That's it. You're done. They didn't deny the existence of gods, but they saw them as indifferent to the rest of us. The gods might be there, but they don't care about us. So since you only go around once, you might as well live life to the fullest. That was kind of their, their philosophy. Stoics were different. They believed in divine activity among humans. They believed that everyone had an, an eternal part. They, they called it the logos, the spark of divinity. We would probably use the word soul, right? Some sort of eternally existing spirit. And they believed that that spirit achieved its fullest potential by learning to live by reason logic, using reason, logic, the divine logos within a person, the divine principle within them, could link people to the gods and to nature, and they could discover their ultimate purpose and their ultimate truth. Something that's going to be important in Paul's speech is that they viewed all people as, as bound together because of this possession of this divine spark. Now, now, if you think about it, that's not necessarily a wrong belief. We would think of all people having some degree of brotherhood because we are all made in the image of God. That God has, you know, made me and you and, and people over in China and, and the, the worst of the worst and the best of the best and everybody in between in the image of God. Uh, part of that having a, a, a spirit or a soul or whatever word you want to say part that will exist, that connects us to, to eternal existence between now and when we get our resurrected body, that sort of thing. Um, and so they had a strong sense of, of brotherhood because of that. Um, and this is not, you know, incidental that Luke picks up on these philosophers because this is going to come back in Paul's speech that he's going to give shortly in the Areopagus. Uh, that's going to be particularly directed, it seems, toward the Stoics, because he is going to connect those things to the creator God of the Old Testament. Now, you'll notice the philosophers, <clears throat> at least in the, in the Agra, are not particularly complimentary of Paul. They refer to him as a babbler. Basically, what they're calling Paul, like he's a, like a chicken. 
indicate later to us in, in this story that the big thing that the Greeks are really, it seems, struggling with here is this idea of resurrection. They certainly didn't have a problem with ideas of divinity and that sort of thing. The Epicureans didn't like the idea because they didn't have any concept. They don't believe anything existed beyond death. When you die, that's it. You're done. Right? Robin Williams in uh, oh, what's the Dead Poet Society, right? He stands up on the desk, gives a speech about, you know, carpe diem, food for word. That's the Epicureans. He's an Epicurean. Okay? Stoics believe that only that, that divine spark, what we would call a soul, <coughs> would survive death. You know, I, I think about that, and I think about the idols and the, the people standing in the agora talking about this and that philosophy and the other philosophy, and it's kind of hard to not, to, to not see the parallels between that period in Athens and our own cultural context. Um, in, in our context, most of the cultural beliefs that once kind of formed the basic underlying philosophies of our country sound like babbling to many people. Particularly in the last 20 years, definitely, definitely severely in the last 10 to 12, almost every basic belief that we once held in common has been called into question or completely abandoned in this country. Concepts of marriage and gender and law and property ownership, basic right and wrong, all been upended, and if you try to talk about them with some people, they just look at you like. <laughs> <laughs> like you're the chicken pecking in the yard. When a Supreme Court nominee cannot explain what a woman is in any meaningful way, we can be pretty sure our culture is more like the Athenians than we care to admit. Well, the Stoics and the Epicureans had their own way of making sense of these things back then. When you have somebody that comes and you're listening to them and you can't decide whether you should believe them or not, you take them to the Brain Trust. And the Brain Trust of Athens was at the place called the Areopagus. And that's where the story picks up in verse 19 at the Areopagus. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Areopagus translates from Greek and means Mars Hill, right? Mars, Ares, uh, was this location between the open marketplace of the Agora and the Acropolis. Okay, so I got a picture here. This is new, okay? This is what it looks like now. That's the Acropolis up there at the top of the highest hill in Athens. You can kind of see it a little bit of how it looked like, okay? You know, Temple of Zeus and a lot would be up there. This, this is the Areopagus here in the foreground. This would have been approximately the area where Paul would have uh, given this speech and then the marketplace would have been here somewhere. That was the bigger part of the city over here. Um, so Areopagus refers to this place, but it also refers to the people who met there, where the leading citizens of Athens would meet there to decide civil, criminal, and religious cases. Okay, so in Rome you had the Senate, right? 
In Athens, you had the Areopagus. And they kind of were the final word in the city on things. So they brought Paul to this, uh, this court, so to speak. And so the court is, the, the group of people there are called the Areopagus, and the place is called the Areopagus, sort of the same way that when you go to New York, there is Wall Street, the street, and the place where the stock exchange is, we also refer to as Wall Street. Okay? Now, you need to understand, Paul is not on trial here. This was the place where religious matters and matters of philosophy were discussed when other cases were being dealt with. The best analogy that I can think of to what it was like for Paul here is this is like going to testify before Congress. Okay? Congress might have a bill, right? And when Congress has a bill, what do they do? They bring in people to give expert testimony, right? So they might bring in, you know, the senators on, on one side of the issue are gonna bring in their experts to testify about it, right? And the senators on the other side of the issue are gonna bring in their experts to testify about it. And they're all gonna get as much information as possible and that sort of thing, okay? Um, no one who goes to testify before Congress when they're giving, you know, testifying on a, on a bill like this, they're not in trouble. You're not going to testify in front of Congress you've gotten in trouble or something. You're going to give your, your experts so that they can kind of think it through as they make a decision on a bill. That, that's what this is like for Paul. The Epicureans and the Stoics couldn't make much sense out of Paul, so they said, hey, Let's take them to the Areopagus, where all the really smart people are, and see if they can figure this out. Because as you read it, this is very strange to our ears. So it's to this group that Paul is going to give his, probably his most famous speech in the book of Acts. And it's his first we have to a purely Gentile audience. Previously, the Gentiles that became followers of Jesus were all Gentiles who were already God-fearers. They were already people that had connection to the true God through the synagogue and through the Jews that were in their town, right? Cornelius is a God-fearer. There were God-fearers at the synagogue. There were Gentiles who believed in God that come to know Jesus. Okay, so they were, they were all starting from some place of Old Testament knowledge. This audience would be aware of almost nothing Maybe only the most basic details of Jewish religion, if they, if they knew anything at all. And so we get Paul's first sermon then to the Gentiles, starting in verse 22. <clears throat> so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, 
as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now whenever I read that, I'm struck by three things. First, Paul's presentation of the gospel here is almost exactly the opposite of how I grew up hearing the gospel. Almost every gospel presentation that I've heard in my life is one of two kinds. It is a four spiritual laws type of gospel presentation. Okay, right? God has a wonderful plan for your life. The problem is sin has separated you from God. Jesus is the bridge, right, that connects you back to God. You need to put your personal faith in Jesus as your Savior, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's the four spirit, right? The bridge illustration, you ever seen? That's just another variant form of the four spiritual laws presentation. Bill Bright, Campus Crusade. Okay, that? Or it's the Billy Graham presentation of the gospel. You are a sinner. Sinners go to hell. Jesus came to save sinners. Repent and believe. That's the basic, that's the basic Billy Graham presentation of the gospel. Nothing in either one of those messages is wrong. They're both true, are they not? Did I say anything untrue? I don't think I did. They're both true, right? But, and they were both good in their time. But, both of those ways of presenting the gospel rely on some certain underlying cultural assumptions that don't work anymore. Assumptions about sin, assumptions about the existence of God, and a particular God who would judge, and a whole bunch of stuff like that that does not connect with people in our culture anymore, as they did in previous times, probably as even 25 years ago. <clears throat> and outside our culture, they connect even less. But that is the typical presentation of the gospel. comes at it kind of differently. He starts with God. You notice both those presentations basically start from the idea that you've got a problem. He starts with God as creator and unifier. So God's creator. And he's unifier. And he's made all people. And then he moves on to Jesus and the idea of judgment and that sort of thing. Most of our presentations start with us and move to Jesus. His starts with God universally, and then moves his hearers to their need to Jesus. Much different way of looking at it. Second thing that I find interesting about Paul's speech is how masterfully he incorporates and then reinterprets their already accepted ideas into his presentation about God. I mean, he's quoting their own poets. He doesn't, you notice he does not talk about sin at all. Notice that? He never talks about sin once in that presentation. But what does he say? The former times of ignorance. God overlooked your ignorance. Well, that's a really smart cultural thing if you happen to be in Athens 
Because sin is not a Greek concept. It's not something they would have related to. But being ignorant was something no reputable Athenian would like to be. What? I'm ignorant of something? I should probably know what you're talking about. They were ignorant in the past of the true God, and now he is revealing himself through the one that he raised from the dead. He connects it to something that would make them... Sin would have just went ignorance, though. That, that's a big deal. Paul uses the Stoic ideas about universal brotherhood and the divine spark and that sort of thing in verse 26. In verses 25 and 27, he connects to their idea of that divine spark in everything that lives. So he'd either been listening really well when he was talking with the philosophers in Athens, or he knew his Greek philosophy. Notice he also is careful to bridge from their present idolatrous religious ideas to the idea of the one true God by talking about the altar to the unknown God, right? He does not come in and say, men of Athens, I see that you are a bunch of heinous pagan devil worshippers. And you better turn or burn. No. No, he does not come with a Billy Sunday approach to things. God has and will continue. 
bring people to Christ. What I am saying, though, is that, just like Paul here, we need to do a little better job of reading the room and learn to be able to share about Jesus by connecting the points in the culture. You find yourself on a plane, and you got your seatmate next to you for the next three hours, and you're thinking, <laughs> and you get your Bible out, and as soon as you know, they take off the fasten your seatbelt sign, and, and blah, blah, blah. I'm old enough to remember when they turned off the no smoking sign. Can you imagine that people used to smoke on planes? Okay, you realize it's a tiny little metal tube. And you're thinking, man, buddy, I want to take you for a trip down the Romans Road. How many remember the Romans Road? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some, you, know, see, it's, you know what I'm talking about, Romans Road, right? I still have a little pocket Bible with the verses for each written in the top upside down. So as you're handing it to him to read the one verse, I can see what the next verse is in the Romans Road. Right? And your seatmate is, they're, they're nice enough, because they know they're trapped with you for the next three hours anyway. They're nice enough to, to, to humor you and read the verses of the Romans Road as you're, as you're going along. But you notice as they're reading it, they're just kind of staring at you blankly because it is not connecting in any way, shape, or form. And that is probably because they have no idea about things like sin and spiritual death. And they're reading this and going, wow, this is, what? <laughs> so they can't even relate to Paul's words in Romans. That's what I mean. Romans wrote, there's nothing wrong with Romans wrote, it's true. It's in the Bible, right? Because it's there. I mean, you're just reading scripture, but it's not going to connect the way it once would. Now, Paul's approach has some success, because look at the reaction of the Areopagites. Verse 32, it says, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Some were interested. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite. So one of the actual members of the Areopagus puts their faith in Jesus, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, it's certainly the resurrection that's, that's the trouble spot, right? Because that's what Luke points out. At the resurrection, some of them mocked and were like, that's and some of them rejected because of that. And some of them were like the seed was planted, right? They wished for further information, and some believed, including this woman named Damaris and Dionysius the Areopagite, one of, one of the, the leading citizens himself. Mixed reactions to the gospel should be expected. But in this, I find great rejoicing and hope. Yeah, some are people are going to reject it. It's true. It's been true all the time. But some are going to receive the seed, right? And it's going to be implanted. And they're going to go, man, I've got to think about this. Or I, I maybe want to hear some more about this later. And some people will believe. I find massive encouragement in that. Some are going to believe. Our efforts are not going to be in vain. And God's going to use us when we're willing to speak a word or two for Jesus. Now, in speaking that word... We can kind of apply some principles here from Paul 
that are gonna, gonna help us connect to people, right? Help us connect to our friends and coworkers and family and whoever. And the first of them then is that we gotta understand the culture. You gotta understand where people are coming from. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess something and some of you are gonna find it appalling and, and that's okay. Hopefully you'll still love me afterwards. I rarely refer to myself around unbelievers as a Christian and definitely never as a Baptist. Now, if that hurts your feelings, I feel really bad. But in the broader culture, those terms are loaded with negative baggage. Loaded. Loaded. And I do not want to have to spend 30 minutes explaining to people, I'm not that kind of Christian. Or I'm not that kind of Baptist. I'm not the old fighting fundy sort of Baptist. You know, those guys, those Westboro guys on TV with their signs about how God hates these people and God hates that people. I'm, I'm no, I'm not that kind of I don't, I don't have time, I want to explain that. I almost always refer to myself when the subject comes up as I am a follower of Jesus. I follow Jesus. And that opens the doors to conversations where I think other terms might close those doors. Because of the loaded baggage that has come to be attached to Some of which is our fault, some of which is not our fault. The time where there was a shared consensus about right and wrong and sin and even truth is long gone. It existed when I was young, but that ship has sailed. And we can mourn that. And we probably should mourn that. But it's the hand we're dealt. And we would do well to read the room a little better and find better ways to connect to people, people to Jesus, than coming at them from the sin and judgment angle. Now you've got to get there eventually, because understanding our sinfulness and our need for a redeemer is critical to the gospel. I'm not saying you're not going to get there sometimes. Because if you have, if you don't get to sin and the Savior, you haven't eventually presented the full gospel. But getting there requires a lot more preliminary work than it used to. Than probably when a lot of us grew up. Now sometimes it's as simple as pointing out the absurdity of someone's present understanding. Yeah, I'm going to give you a story. <laughs> Francis Schaeffer tells this story when of he had a young Buddhist who came to Labrie. Now Labrie was his fellowship in Europe where people would come and that sort of thing. And they were having one of their meetings one evening and the Buddhist was talking about how pleasure and pain and all this in Buddhism are just all different aspects of the same thing. And they, they, they mean nothing because you're trying to move on to enlightenment. So Francis Schaeffer quietly walked over to the hot teapot boiling over, sitting over on the stove, and took it and walked over to the young man and acted like he was going to pour it on the man's head. And the kid screamed, what are you doing? And Schaeffer looked at him and said, you just told me that pleasure and pain are just the same thing and that they don't matter. Right? Because that's absurd. It's pure absurdity. Sometimes you just got to take things to a logical conclusion and people go, oh, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe my thinking wasn't so good. So once you, once you kind of understand the culture of whoever you're dealing with, then you can adapt the approach, right? Because that's what Paul does. You know, when I'm talking to somebody sometimes and they ask me, you know, oh, you're a follower of Jesus. Well, why do you follow Jesus? Well, let me give you a couple reasons. Um, Jesus has changed my life, and here's how. 
Jesus rose from the dead. And here's why I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I don't start with a whole lot of proposition of truth. Well, you know, it says in the Bible. That doesn't mean anything to most people anymore if I say it says in the Bible. Now, 50 years ago, that meant something. Now it doesn't mean anything. In fact, it might go the wrong way for you if you start there. Because some people think that the Bible is the book of haters, which is not true. But that's what they think. I don't start with that. That's not what our culture is at. Your story might be a better starting point than thus saith the Lord. And then I'll say something maybe like, since I believe in the resurrection, it's led me to the teachings of Jesus. And then invite them to go read about it for themselves. Or, hey, maybe you'd like to get together and talk about the teachings of Jesus sometime. I don't tell them what those teachings are. Because I want to get them into reading it for themselves. Because Jesus is a much better teacher of himself than I am. And I think with people, especially who have not grown up in any sort of church or with any kind of contact, that, that's a fairly good approach. It kind of mirrors the missionary approach of a lot of missionaries when they're going to cultures now where no one has heard the name of Jesus before. They start with the stories of the Bible and use those to connect to points in the culture. And over time, that bring people to Jesus. Last thing. If you're going to share the gospel with people in a modern culture, you need to be able to reason with them without arguing. You notice when Paul is done, he leaves. Done, he says peace, he leaves. He doesn't make much arguments. He's perfectly fine with the mixed reactions to his message. I don't see anywhere in scripture where Paul gets lured into unprofitable arguments. It's easy to do, especially because I like to fight about things. It's rarely effective. Sometimes you just gotta take that longer-term seed planting perspective. Notice again, Paul did not tell them. You are a bunch of wicked pagan idolaters. And you're going to burn. He doesn't say that. He told them they were very religious. He, he turned something that really, when we look at it, goes kind of a, right? Into something complimentary. Well, I see you're religious. Let me help you with that. He was going to increase their understanding. Give another example, okay? It is not going to help if you call people who are pro-abortion wicked baby killers. <laughs> that is not going to help your case. Don't do it. Is that going to get anybody anywhere? No, it is not. What if you started with something like, hmm, you know, I see that you care about women very much. We all can agree on that. I mean, can I not agree with a person who is, is what I'm going to call pro-abortion, pro-choice, whatever? Can I not agree that we all care about women very much? I hope we do. If you don't care about women, you've got a problem with Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus cared for and respected women very much. I could do a whole series, sermon series going through the Gospels showing you all the places where Jesus elevates women in his culture and where he shows the utmost respect in a culture that did not elevate or respect women. There you go. We've got a connecting point to the gospel now. Right? I'm not going to sit and criticize and argue with them and fight with them. And I mean, that's not going to help. I'm not going to argue about the finer points of when life starts. I, 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 
we can get into that argument, but I'm probably not going to change your mind. I'm not going to change my mind. But I can connect and promote Jesus, which can do a lot more in the long run to change hearts and minds than my arguments about this, that, or the other. Okay. The gospel message is powerful, not only because it's the power of God for salvation, as Paul will say in Romans, but because, if you notice, the message has points of connection to any culture in any time. There's always going to be a point of connection between Jesus and a culture. It's our job to find those connecting points and use them then to help people move toward Jesus in that gospel message. Now, now you may not, we may not be Paul. I'm not Paul. I mean, that guy was smart. No doubt. May not be him. But we can all learn from his pattern of understanding of how he understood culture and how he looked at his audience and then he adapted that presentation, presentation of the truth, to his audience so that they could come and embrace the Savior. Let's pray. Father, it, it is amazing to me how the gospel message is such a, a supracultural thing that in the gospel there are places, ideas, truths that connect to, to every culture at every time in some way, shape, or form, whether it has to do with creation or eternal souls or whether it has to do with sin or shame or guilt, cultures of shame and guilt cultures. All of those things, there's points where we can connect the gospel, take people to Jesus, where they can learn the truth, about the one who died for their sins and rose from the dead. And so, Father, as we worship and adore our Savior, help us to be the kind of people who can read the room and be able to tell others about the one we worship and